Now I'm going to open my Bible. And I'm going to the book of John chapter 4. Have the Gospels. And you can join me there. We'll be there in just a few moments. Today I'm starting a new series entitled True Worshipers. True Worshipers. I'm going to be here for uh, next week. Next week I'm going to talk to you about the body language of worship. The next week I'll be in Israel. Ha, 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 ha. And um, you'll have a good time here with Steve Miller, and then I'll be back to next week, uh, and I'll pick it up again. Thank the Lord. In the book of John, chapter 4, there is a beautiful story of how Jesus is, is traveling with his disciples, and he goes through the city of Samaria. Now, Samaria was adjacent to uh, the land of Judah, and not far from the city of Judea. Samaria is always um, in opposition, and when you read in the New Testament, it's always in opposition to the Jews and to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, there was great hatred between the two bodies of people, even though they were formerly kin and they lived next door to each other. Huge racial prejudice and huge animosity existed between these two groups of people. So they go to the city and Jesus sits on the well outside the city and his disciples go into the village to buy food for their entourage. And while Jesus is sitting on the well waiting for his disciples to come back with with something to eat, a woman came up and started to draw water out of the well. In the next few verses, Jesus confronts three of the four universal prejudices in the world. Those prejudices are racial, class, lower, middle, upper class, gender, male and female, and fourthly is religion. All over the world, ever since there's been a human race, there has been war over gender, race, class, and religion. And Jesus confronts and overcomes three of those when he reaches out to this woman at the well. So she's going to draw water, and he says to her, would you mind giving me something to drink? And she looks at him like, you're a Jew? You're asking me, a Samaritan, a woman even, to give you something to drink? And he said to her, if you knew who I was, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. And she said, this well is deep. You obviously don't have anything to pull water out with. How is it you're going to give me water when you don't even have a bucket? Just a practical response. And he said, the water that I give you will be in you a well that will spring up into everlasting life. So there were three major barriers that Jesus overcame. First of all, he overcame the hatred and the racial prejudice that existed between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Secondly, he overrode the prejudice between male and female genders and the culture of that day. And thirdly, he begins to bridge between the two religions. You see, the Samaritans had a religion, and they were convinced it was the right one. And the Jewish had a religion, and they convinced it was the right, and the two could not meet together. And so Jesus begins to minister to this woman about the reality of the living water that he offers. And so in that discussion, he mentions the fact, uh, 
he begins to move into her personal life, and he says, um, where is your husband? She said, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right, you don't, have a, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. And she was like, whoa, how did this stranger know that? But it opened her eyes and opened her heart, and instead of being angry and, de- and defensive, it turned her into a believer, and she was ready to receive the gospel. Jesus then addresses the religious barrier, and uh, he does so in about the 24th verse, 21st verse, he said, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father in this mountain, that means Samaria, or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship Him that way. For God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So he just dives right in and said, now you Samaritans, you think you ought to worship in this mountain, and we Jews, we think we ought to worship in Jerusalem, but you Samaritans really don't know what you're talking about. However, the Jews, we know all about it. Well, she could have just turned around and walked right off right then, like, okay, I know where you're coming from. But Jesus went on to say, a new day has dawned. A new era has been born. When it's not going to matter whether you worship in Samaria or you worship in Jerusalem, because the Father is seeking for us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. You see, Jesus came to induct us into a new era of worship. Some significant changes were going to take place. And the Father is seeking true worshipers. I believe today, some 2,000 years later, that the Father is still looking for true worshipers. I want to talk to you today about being a true worshiper because that's what our Father is looking for. It matters to me that the Father God is looking for true worshipers. I'm like, well, if you're looking for true worshipers, I'm like, I want to be one of those. You know, worship is indeed a privilege, a privilege. To have the privilege to come before God and worship Him and really encounter God is an awesome privilege. Now, I realize when people have never had that experience, they don't understand what is really taking place. It's like, well, you go to church, you sit or stand or both, and you sing these songs that I don't know how to sing and I don't know the words I've never heard before, and they don't sound like anything I hear on the radio. I don't have a single CD that sounds like that, but somehow you stand there and that's worship. And they don't understand yet that worship is not just singing strange music, but it is an entrance into the presence of God, and it's an encounter with God that is virtually life-changing. It is a privilege to come in and truly worship, because that's when you connect with God in a spiritual kind of a way. It's an absolute privilege. It's a pleasure to worship God. You know, uh, thankfully, I was raised in a worshiping home and in a worshiping church, 
And I learned early the privilege of living your life, doing as good as you can, and sometimes that's great and sometimes it's not. But then going into the house of God and standing with the people of God, lifting your hands and worshiping God and entering His presence, it's something like you look forward to that. You, that, that for many, that becomes the centerpiece of the whole service because there's a washing and a cleansing and an encouraging and an uplifting that takes place in the context of the worship. It's just a beautiful experience. And we want everybody to know the beauty of it. And then there's so much promise in worship, so much promise. Um, For me, um, I, I think I probably heard the voice of the Holy Spirit speak to me in different ways during a worship setting than any other single setting in my life. I mean, probably like you, you hear God at different times and places, uh, but the, the two times I'm most likely to hear the Holy Spirit in my heart is either when I'm in a worship service or early in the morning before I get out of bed. Those are the two times that I'm most likely to get real clarity and to hear something in, from the voice of the Lord in my heart. So I cherish worship because, first of all, I come into His presence and I love Him and adore Him and I love the the interaction of the realized presence of God. And then secondly, I have this great expectation that, you know, maybe God is going to speak to me. Maybe He's going to speak a message and give me an answer, direction, give me some clarity. So there's huge promise. People get healed all the time in the worship. They, they get strengthened and encouraged and, and so many dynamic and powerful things happen when the people of God worship together. It's, it's just a wonderful privilege. Now, you know, I've never been a, a, a great singer or musician in my life. Uh, I, I can barely hit the notes. I remember when, I, when Renee and I was young, she forced me to sing on the church worship album. I didn't want to, but she forced me to. And then after they finished that thing, I'm telling you, it was horrible. I had more flat spots, Howard, than the state of Kansas. It was horrible. <laughs> Uh, And she's never got me to record another word ever since because I knew that was not my calling and that's not what I need to do. I burned all those tapes. I don't think there's another one exists. I have demolished them all. Um, So I'm not a singer and I can't quite hit the notes. I don't remember the words and and it it just didn't come together for me. But you know, when I get in the presence of God, it's not about whether I can hit the notes. It's, it's not about whether I can sing all the words. and hit, It's not about that. It's just about me worshiping God. And so I just open my heart and I let it fly. It, you know, hopefully nobody can hear me. Nobody's listening. It don't matter. I'm just worshiping God. So, you know, wor- worship is not just for those that have the ability to sing and hit the notes, but it's for everybody. And, uh, it, and, and I want to encourage you to be a worshiper and engage yourself because there is huge promise in worship. Now, let me move on just a little further. So if there is such a thing as a true worshiper, then I have to ask myself, what constitutes a false worshiper? I mean, if there's true, there must be false, right? Well, first of all, a false worshiper would be someone with the wrong concept of God. The wrong concept of God. It isn't true worship unless you're truly worshiping the true and living God. I mean, you can't just pick a God or make up a God. You have to be worshiping the true and living God. And that has to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one can come to the Father except through me. So here's, here's what happened. The Father God sent His Son to earth to suffer and die, be crucified on a cross, to pay the penalty for my sin and yours and that of the whole world. And He made sure that no one was going to get to Him and circumvent His Son. There's a lot of religions that want to circumvent Jesus Christ and say, well, we're all worshiping the same eternal God. We're all serving the, guy, the, the big guy. But God set this up where that He wasn't going to send His Son to suffer and die in Calvary and then let whole religions go around Jesus to get to Him. So the whole idea that there are religions that we don't, they don't believe in Jesus, but yet they serve the same God is completely, absolutely wrong. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, I'm the life, and you can't get to the Father unless you go through Jesus. And believing He was a good man or He was one of the prophets won't cut it. You have to believe that He is the exclusive Son of God, the only Savior of the world, and until you bow your knee at Jesus Christ, you're never going to get near the Father. So, you list all the religions you know that are circumventing Jesus Christ, and every one of them are false. Every one of them are false. You cannot get to the Father except you bow your knee at Jesus Christ. Absolutely. So, not to be harsh or mean, but Christianity is exclusive. The whole nature of the fundamental doctrine of Christ excludes everybody else that doesn't bow their knee to Jesus Christ. Now, within the Christian camp, there's this doctrine and that doctrine and this practice and that practice. But if you're going to be a true Christian, you've got to bow your knee to Jesus Christ. And you can't go around Him to get to the Father. So, first of all, you can't be serving the wrong God. Secondly, you can't have the wrong methods and rituals. I read to you where Jesus said, For God is a spirit, and those that worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, there is a pattern, there is a plan, there is a, a ritual, there, there's a model. And you can't just go figure out how you want to do it. Well, I want to worship a tree. I want to go sit out on the side of the, the, the ocean. Uh, I, I want to do it this way. I want to do it that way. I, we add this. We add that. No, there is a model of New Testament worship. And we have to worship according to the way that God set out for us to worship. We're a New Testament church. We use the New Testament as our model. The Bible as our worship guide. And it's imperative that we worship God the way He said He wanted to be worshipped. The third thing is, some people worship with the wrong motives for worship. There's a lot of reasons why people might engage in some form of worship, but there's only one core reason to worship, and here it is in Matthew 12 and 30. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That's the heart of a worship. Why do you worship? Because you're afraid to go to hell? No, I won't cut it. Why do you worship? Because it's socially acceptable. I won't cut it. Well, I go to church and worship because my parents go to church and I won't cut it. You have to love God with all of your heart. Worship is a, a love God experience. 
It's a worship with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's a total uh, offering or gift that you give to God from the love that is in your heart. So our motive for worship has to be an absolute love for God. Now when people, when true worshipers come before God, it connects them with the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus said, God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit. God is a spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit. So God is a spirit, but so is every human being. You and I are all made of, uh, we are triune beings. We're made of three faculties, spirit, soul, and body. My spirit is the center of me. It isn't my mind. It isn't my personality. It isn't my body. But my spirit is the center of my being. God is a spirit. I am a spirit. And when you come into worship, the spirit of man and the spirit of God connect. So worship is a spiritual connection. And it's possible to sing the same song and clap and lift your hands and maybe do all of that. But if there's no connection made in the spirit, then there's no true worship. So I'm not here just to sing songs and be a part of what everybody else is doing and be on the scene, but I'm here to make a connection with God. And you know, at the end of every worship segment, I ask myself, did you connect or was your mind wandering? Were you here mentally and spiritually and did you connect with God as you were worshiping or were you just going through the motions? Well, I guess I've been guilty of that time past, and I don't ever want to be guilty of that again, because when I get into worship, I want to worship Him in the Spirit, and I want my human spirit to connect with God. Now, we have wonderful people that come and worship with us from time to time. They're new in this thing. They don't understand it. Maybe they're not even saved, and, and they, they, don't, they don't have that kind of experience. But let me tell you something. When the people around you have connected in the Spirit, when the people around you have got a good connection, you know, they've got like five tall bars. Spiritually speaking, I'm telling you, uh, you can feel it. It's because they're feeling it, you're feeling it, and it sort of gets on you. How many of you know what I'm talking about? That's one of the great values of, of corporate worship. It helps usher people into the place where they can make this spiritual connection. True worshipers connect in the Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, there was animal sacrifice. And so worshipers would come to worship. They would not sit in chairs and sing together, and they would not um, lift hands and clap hands in the way that you and I enjoy today, but they would come leading their animals, herding their flocks and their, their animals, and they would bring baskets and barrels of grain, and they would come and they would butcher the animals, and they would burn the meat, and they would burn the grain offerings, and, and it really wasn't a spiritual experience, it was a bloody experience. And priests were blood-covered and filthy from having handled all the animals and all the grain and having slaughtered all these animals and captured the blood and, and butchered it and, and gave some to the priest and some they weighed before the Lord and others they burned on an offering. I mean, it was a bloody, dirty experience. But we don't have to do that today because Jesus brought a new and better covenant, a new and better way. Man, we got the ultimate upgrade. I'm sure glad today I don't have to butcher anything. I could, I just don't want to. I can come here and lift my hands and worship God because now our sacrifices are not done with knives, but they're done with uplifted hands, worshiping and praising God and lifting up His name. That's the sacrifices we offer to Him. 
We read that in the book of Hebrews chapter 14, verse 15. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to His name. So when we lift up our voice and proclaim His name and declare our allegiance and our commitment to Him and proclaim His wonderful good things, that's a sacrifice. In the way in the Old Testament, there were animals that were slaughtered and they were, they were burned on an offering. Today we don't have to do any of that. We just come and worship God and sing and praise His name and lift our hands and clap our hands and rejoice in the Lord because the old sacrifices were replaced with new ones that were just spiritual, and they didn't involve anybody dying. Thank God that we're living in a new day. And through this praise and worship, we have the privilege to enter His presence. The, the tabernacle over here that had all the, the blood sacrifices, you had to go through the blood sacrifice before you could get into the presence of God. And if there wasn't a series of correct sacrifices made, animals didn't lose their lives and cleansing and purifications didn't take place, uh, the priests, who were the only ones that could go in, couldn't even go into the presence of God. But Jesus came along and He said, that was all good and it prepared the way, but now here's what it was preparing us for. I want all my people to come in and worship me and offer sacrifices of praise. And He said, every one of them can come before the Father. Through Jesus Christ, we have access into the holy place with God. And so worship is not just singing and worshiping and, and ha being human beings and having a human being experience, but it's human beings having a spiritual experience and worshiping God and coming into His presence. There's nothing that will consistently bring you into the presence of God like real heartfelt worship. It takes you in to an encounter with God. Can you say amen? amen. True worship is based on truth. You can't have true worship without truth, right? There are some fundamental truths of the Word of God. And those fundamental truths is what makes us a part of the body of Christ. And so there's a lot of churches that they have a little bit of truth and a whole lot of deception and lies. They're Christian cults. They're Christian extreme groups. I'm not naming any of those. But they go far away from the fundamental principles of Christ. And uh, they use the Bible. They use Jesus. They kind of extract things that might have some truth in it. But the overall picture is they're living in falsehoods and they're preaching lies and they're living lies. And so it's important that we worship God in truth. I don't think there ought to be one denomination. Everybody ought to have all exactly the same doctrine. I'm just saying there's some extremes of Christianity out there that we have to be on guard for. You have to worship God in truth and in truthfulness. And the greatest truth is the identity of Christ. That's the greatest truth of all. And I know I mentioned this before, but I'm going to hit it one more time because there's not a truth in the Bible more important than this one thing. Jesus said, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He asked his disciples, and they said, well, some say you're Isaiah, and some say you're uh, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, on his golden moment, his golden moment, stood up and said, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. That's who you are. You're not a prophet. You're not just a good man. You're not just an extraordinary teacher. You are the Son of God. You're the Savior of the world. And Jesus said, on that rock of revelation of who I am, I'm going to build my church. And this church is built on one thing. Every church, every Christian church in the world built on one truth. Jesus Christ is the exclusive Son of God. He's the exclusive Savior of the world. And there's no way to be saved outside of Him. He's it. 
And so again, the identity of Christ is the cornerstone. The Bible goes on to say in the book of Ephesians that we're built on the foundation of the apostles with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And so we're, taught, we're, we're teaching, preaching, and practicing the, the teachings of the apostles. When it, this reference is to the original apostles. There were 12. One of them failed. In addition to that, there were other apostles that God raised up in the first century, the most primary one being the Apostle Paul, who gave us two-thirds of the New Testament. And so we're built on that foundation, the teachings of the apostles. And the amazing thing is that it isn't updated and upgraded and revised every few years. Just about everything is upgraded, updated, and revised every few years because, you know, it's got to fit the modern world. You know, it's sometimes said that our, our Constitution in America is a living organism that has to grow and breathe and, and conform to the new. Well, I argue about the Constitution all day long, but the Bible and the teaching of the apostles is not a living organism to the extent that it changes every few years and we have to adapt it and fit it to the modern world. No, sir, the, the, the teaching of the apostles was given and the world stands on it and it will always stand on it. It's not ever going to change. It's the foundation that we're built on. And so you have to have some truth. I'm not one to believe that you have to have all truth. But you sure have to have some fundamental truths going on in your life for it to be true worship. And so, um, true worship. Now, the New Testament model of corporate worship was quite different from the Old Testament. And when Jesus came on the scene, he was creating a bridge for us to get out of the old way into the new. Now, I don't teach a lot about eschatology and the end times and what might happen in our future. I, I, I have a few things I want to make sure you know, but that's not really my specialty. But let me tell you something that I think you should avoid as you study the various Christian teachers, the various concepts of what happens at the end times and, and all of that. Um, when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, it was the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice. God will never recognize another sacrifice again after His Son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross. So I don't know if they're going to build a temple in Jerusalem and they're going to get the ashes of the red heifer and start bringing animals in there and slaughter them again or not. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I can tell you if it happens, it won't matter to God one bit. When you give your son, he gives his life. There's no other animal sacrifice will ever be recognized again. He is the ultimate and final sacrifice that God will ever see. Doesn't mean somebody else may start something all over again, but it will not be recognized by God. And if there's some time in the future, which I believe there is, that Jewish people around the world are going to come to Christ in greater numbers than we've seen in the history of the church, they're not going to be able to circumvent Jesus Christ. They're not going to get in the body of Christ around Jesus. They're going to have to get born again, just like you and me got born again. They're going to have to live for Christ. They're going to have to bow their knee to Him. You can't go around Jesus, even if you're a Jew. So when Jesus was ushering in this new form of worship, uh, there were several significant changes that was taking place that lays the foundation of how and why we worship like this today. First of all, worship was going to be open to any and everybody. The temple in the Old Covenant, you had to be a Jew, you had to go through certain things, nobody could just go into the temple. 
But in the New Testament, it was open to anybody and everybody that would come with an humble heart to worship. It was for the whole wide world. There would definitely, um, it was not going to be geographically specific. So in the Old Covenant, you had to go to Jerusalem. In the New Covenant, didn't have it. we don't have a Jerusalem. What we have is houses of worship all over the globe where people come and corporately worship together. So it wasn't going to be geographically specific as it was in the Old Testament. There wasn't going to be a central form of government. When there was the Old Testament, there was a temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and there was a central form of government, and those teachers and those rabbis controlled the whole event. But in the New Testament, God said, I don't want a central form of government. I'm going to choose apostles and prophets, and I'm going to send them out to the world, and they're going to build local churches all over the world, and there's not going to be a headquarters, and there's not going to be a, 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 there's not going to be a single government, there's not going to be a single group of people that's going to run the whole thing, but the Holy Spirit is going to oversee all of the churches and all the ministries and all the apostolic houses that are raised up. The Holy Spirit is going to oversee them. This is the way Jesus set it up. If he'd have wanted centralized government, he'd have built it. But he didn't want it that way. He sent the apostles. You study the 12 apostles where they went uh, after the resurrection. And over a period of time, one would go to India and one would go to Turkey and, a, and another would go to North Africa and another would go to Europe. And the apostles were sent out over to the known world and began to build the churches everywhere they went. That's the way God ordained it. And it still works that way here today. <clears throat> And so I'm bringing this to a close. I'm just trying to wrap it up for you just a minute. I'm out of time. I just want to wrap it up. So in the New Testament, the form of worship was quite different. There was, of course, teaching of the Scripture. There would be personal prayer by the laying on of hands by the apostles in the ministry. There would be singing. Yes, there would be musical instruments. There'd be clapping and the lifting of hands. There'd be the demonstration of extraordinary gifts. All these things would happen in the context of worship according to the New Testament model. And so that's part of the reason why we do what we do. Now, next Sunday, I'm going to talk to you about the body language of worship. The body language of worship. We're going to go back through the New Testament model of worship and find out how we are to express physically our love, adoration, submission to God. And I'll hit that next week. But let me close with this final thought. What you and I want is true worship. I want to be a true worship and I want a worshiper and I want to experience true worship. Worship that is prescribed in the Bible. Worship that connects us with the realized presence of God. Not just a religious experience, ritual or calisthenic, but I want to walk into worship that I can feel God close and near and I realize that I have made that spiritual connection. I want worship that's passionate. I want worship that's energetic. I want worship that is expressive. Next week I'm going to talk to you about how to express on the outside what you're feeling on the inside. And I want worship that precipitates the presence and power of God. So strong that people that aren't worshiping experience it anyway. They kind of get in the overflow. That's the kind of worship that we want in this house. Thank you, Hannah and our team, for doing a good job week after week of bringing us into the presence of God. Let me tell you something. 
There is nothing that generates the presence of God in corporate gatherings like prayer and worship. It's those two things that create the energy and the motion in the spirit. When you and I are praying and when we're worshiping, God starts moving every time. You may not can tell him what to do or how to move, but when you start praying and you start worshiping fervently, the Holy Spirit gets real active in our midst. How many of you want the Holy Spirit to be active in our midst? Then let's be true worshipers. How many of you want to be a true worshiper? That was pretty weak. Pretty weak. I don't think that's going to get it. <laughs> Passionate, energetic, expressive. How many of you want to be true worshipers? All right. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord. You can close your Bibles now.